Hiya, welcome to another episode of Dark and Spooky, a horror podcast with me, Miss Dark and Spooky, aka The Girl Next Door. Today's episode will be part two of Unsolved Mysteries. So are you all settled and cosy? Shall we get into them? Let's do it. Sunset Cliffs, two surfers found the body of 25-year-old Michelle von Emster floating face down in a kelp bed. The body was taken to the lifeguard headquarters. She was found naked, only wearing a brass bracelet and two rings. She had a butterfly tattoo on her shoulder and had long brown hair. Medical examiner Robert Engel also noted she had large tearing type wounds with missing tissue as the body was missing most of its right leg he believed that Michelle had not been in the water long and marked her course of death as unknown nevertheless there were an overwhelming senses that her death was caused by a shark attack a day later on April 16th medical examiner Brian Blackburn conducted a formal autopsy In addition to her right leg being missing from the thigh down, Michelle's neck was broken, as if she had been in a car wreck, and she had broken ribs, scrapes, bruises and contusions on her face. Blackburn also reported finding sand in her mouth, throat, lungs and stomach, and that she was alive when the injuries were inflicted. According to Blackburn's timeline, he concluded that she got into the water around midnight and that was indeed a shark attack because lifeguards, harbour police and marine biologists at Scripps Institution of Oceanography told him so. However, there are things that don't add up for the cause of death being a shark attack. Blackburn had never seen a death caused by a shark before and neither had anyone who initially saw the body. The experts at the Scripps Institution never saw Michelle's body, making their initial inquiries questionable. Additionally, many experts say today that this death wasn't caused by a great white, as the autopsy stated, including Ralph Collier, the leading expert in Pacific Coast white shark behaviour. After seeing Michelle's body, Collier said, when a shark bites off parts of a limb, the break is clean, almost like you put it on a table saw. What remained of Michelle's femur was anything but. It looked like what happens when you get a piece of bamboo and whittle it down to a point with a knife. I've looked at close to 100 photos of cases that I've reviewed over the years and have never seen any bones that came to a point. Plus, it's important to note, once Michelle's leg had been severed, she would have bled out quickly from a severed femoral artery. This would have made it extremely difficult to take a large breath, as she would have had to have done to get the sand into her stomach. 
This makes the theory that a shark forced her to the bottom of the ocean, where she took a breath and swallowed sound, extremely unlikely. Officially, Michelle's death is considered the result of a great white shark attack, but the true nature and circumstances of her untimely demise remains a mystery. Shotgun. This was the second time he had shot someone. 
first time was local farmer Romain Henry, who came shot in the stomach after Henry chased him off the Henry's land. Miraculously, Beau Bowenkamp survived the shot and Ken was arrested and charged with attempted murder. His trial was set for August 18th, 1980, and in his usual fashion, Ken tried to intimidate the Bowenkamp family and supporters from testifying. Bowenkamp's wife said, you can't know how imitating it was after that, before his trial. He'd drive up to our house in his pickup at night and just sit there. Sometimes he would fire his gun. It was frightening. Nevertheless, Ken was able to delay the trial almost five months to June 25th, 1981. During this time, the acting prosecuting attorney resigned and a new prosecutor, David Bound, was assigned to the case. It is rumoured that McElroy bullied the previous prosecutor to leave. Barn was only three years out of law school but accomplished the impossible. He was able to convict Ken of a crime, granted. He was only convicted of second degree assault. The jury set a maximum sentence of two years and the judge freed him on a $40,000 bail bond pending the appeal. This is because Burns lessened the charge from attempt to kill to knowingly caused serial, serious physical harm. Soon after he was released, he was bizarrely spotted with a rifle at the town's local bar, D&G Tavern, where he was making graphic threats about killing Bo Bowenkamp. He was then arrested and then quickly released for violating bail by being armed. On July 10th, 1981, there was a local meeting at the town's Legion Hall, just down the street from the D&G Tavern. As many as 60 residents attended, including the mayor and the sheriff. During the meeting, the whole topic of discussion was what they could do legally to prevent Ken from harming anyone else. County Sheriff Danny States suggested a neighbourhood watch, but the mindset was said perfectly by an attendee. We simply felt that the system had failed us. We all knew what Ken was like and there he was again and again. It seemed like no one could stop him. During the meeting, a local said that they had spotted Ken and his young wife, Serena, on their way to grab drinks at the D&G tavern. The meeting was quickly adjourned and the 60 odd people who were at that meeting quietly descended onto the tavern, flanking Ken's truck. Some of the attendees went to the bar and waited for Ken to finish his drinks. Upon returning to the truck where Trina was sitting in the passenger seat, Ken lit a cigarette. Trina then reported glancing over his shoulder and saw someone pointing a rifle towards the back of the truck and took aim at Ken and then shots were fired. Ken was hit twice, killing him. In all, there were 46 potential witnesses to the shooting, including Trina. No one called for an ambulance. Only Trina claimed to identify a gunman, however every other witness either was unable to name the person who had pulled the trigger or claimed not to have seen who filed, fired the, the fatal shots. The DA declined to press charges. To this day, the person who shot Ken McElroy remains unknown. <laughs> Thank you.
February 21st, 1945, Dr. Samuel Shepard and Marilyn Reese were married and settled in a small, close-knit, friendly community near Lake Erie, Ohio. Two years later, they had their first and only child, who they affectionately nicknamed Chip. Samuel was a respected neurosurgeon and the couple were believed to have a happy marriage. On July 3rd, 1954, the Shepherds hosted a party for all their neighbours that included dinner, drinks and a movie. Just after midnight, Samuel fell asleep on the couch and Marilyn said goodbyes to the guests. At about half five a.m. on July 4th, Mayor Spencer Hillock, who was a close friend of the Shepherds, woke to a phone call from Samuel saying, My God, Spence, get over here quick. I think they've killed Marilyn. Hawk and his wife, Esther, made a beeline towards the house to find Samuel shirtless in his study, holding his neck in a seemingly state of shock. They called the police and the authorities arrived around 6am. According to the police report, Marilyn's body was found lying upwards with her face turned towards the door. She was beaten beyond recognition. She had over 20 gashes deep in her face and scalp. Sheets were covered with blood and the walls were dripping with heavy splatter. Her pyjamas were partially removed, leaving her exposed. The autopsy reported that her time of death was around half 4am. Sadly, it also revealed that Marilyn had been four months pregnant with their second child. According to Samuel, he had been asleep downstairs when he heard Marilyn shout his name. He ran upstairs and found her being attacked by a white form. They fought, but Samuel was hit on the back of his neck and knocked out. When he woke, Marilyn was dead and the white form was gone. He then ran to Chip's room and thankfully saw him alive and sleeping soundly. He then went downstairs and then saw the white form exiting through the back door. He chased the tall and bushy-haired figure down to the shores of Lake Erie. Samuel then explained that he lunged or jumped and grasped at the strange figure, but then he said, I felt myself twisting or choking that, that terminated my subconscious. When Samuel came to, it was nearly dawn and his shirt and watch were missing. Samuel was the only witness to the crime as well as the most likely suspect. On December 21st, 1954, after extensive deliberating for four days, the jury found Shepherd guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to life in prison, but maintained his innocence. Eventually, his life sentence was overturned. The real story about what happened to Marilyn Shepherd remains a mystery. security prison Alcatraz sat on a 22-acre island known as The Rock, about 1.25 miles from San Francisco. Because of this, the prison was deemed unescapable. 
The water surrounding the prison hovers around 48 to 54 degrees all year and has strong currents. As time went on, the prison would fall into disrepair and the budget to fix numerous problems was limited. There would become a resounding factor in the inmates, Clarence Anglum, John Anglum, Alan West and Frank Morris escaping. It was reported that West approached Morris with a plan to escape in early 1960. West knew of a ventilator cover in cell block B that might have not been sealed over with concrete like the majority of the vents. If this was true, it could provide them with a way to get on the roof of, of the prison from the inside. West also began working with the maintenance crew which provided him insight into the building's structure, layout and weaknesses. By September 1961, the Anglian brothers, John and Clarice, Morris and West requested cell moves that made them closer to each other in cell block B, directly under the unsecured vent. All cell moves were approved. The plan to escape was undoubtedly bold and ambitious. Phase one involved creating a head to start to provide them enough time to tackle the mile and a quarter to San Francisco. They created a diversion by painting dummy heads, which were made from a plaster-like mix of soap, concrete and other materials, completed with real human hair. They laid the heads in their beds to fool the guards, and sure enough, when the 7am bell went off to the, wake the prisoners on the morning after the escape, guards discovered that the prisoners were still asleep in their beds. It wasn't until one of the guards reached into Morris's cell, pushed the head and it fell onto the ground that the guards realised that something was wrong. To this day, the dummy head still bears the damage that resulted from the fall. It's unknown who exactly came up with the idea to make dummy heads, Clarence worked as a barber and had access to hair trimmings. After laying the dummy heads in their beds, the gang moved on to phase two of their plans to escape the inescapable prison. The men went to work on busting out of their cells. All four of them had five times nine and a half inch ventilator grates in the back of their cells. Perhaps from his time in maintenance, West knew that the walls surrounding the grates were less than six inches thick, making it possible for each man to expand the hole in their cell to fit through. For months, the prisoners spent time drilling small, close-knit holes around the cover of the ventilation grates and using crude handmade tools like spoons stolen from the kitchen and a drill made from a vacuum cleaner motor. These holes were made, made it possible to remove the entire small section of the wall around the air vents, which they covered with their musical instruments or fake covers made of cardboard. These hold, allow, holes allowed them to access a utility corridor that was directly behind their cells that was typically left unguarded. From there, they were able to climb up to a hidden land area directly above their cell block where they had been working in secret for several months. In this area, they were able to make the dummy heads, tools and other items they used to get their great escape. However, it was worth noting that West never made it to this landing spot during the escape because he was unable to break through the last portion of the wall around his ventilation grate. Consequently, he was left behind. From the landing, the trio was able to climb pipes to the ceiling and reach an air vent that they had previously pried off to ready their escape. Experts say that a sound that was heard around half 10pm was the sound of the air vent cover being pushed off the roof. They then climbed down the roof via a pipe to the back of their cell block, 
climbed the 15-foot fence and made their way to the north shore of the island. To escape the island, the prisoners had made their life preserves and a 14-foot rubber raft, all made from prison-issued raincoats. They gathered over 50 raincoats for the job, possibly stitching them together using sewing machines and vancalized rubber coats by holding the seams up to the heat from the seam steam pipe. The raft was inflated by using a concertina. Once it was realised that the prisoners were missing, Alcatraz went into lockdown and a search began. Guards quickly found the hidden workshop, the hole in the ceiling and footprints on the roof and on the ground of the pipe where they climbed down. The FBI joined the case as well as the Coast Guard and the Bureau of Prison Authorities in a wide-scale search, but the escapees, as well as their raft, were never seen again. She'd taken two mild sedatives that were mainly used to calm patients before surgery. She had also told him she was planning to take two more before bed. Later that night, she would fall asleep in an unholstered chair for the last time as she would become the victim of an apparent house fire. The next morning, Mary's landlord reported smelling smoke around 5am, but it wasn't until 8am when she went to go deliver a telegraph to Mary that she would smell the smoke again. She, just, she discovered soot in the hallway and the knob leading to Mary's apartment was too hot to grab. So she enlisted the help of nearby house painters to get into the apartment. What they found inside the apartment was truly horrifying. The remains of Mary Reza. Her skull was reported shrunk to the size of a cup and parts of her spine also remained. But the most terrifying was Mary's left foot, which was found still in its black satin slipper, the skin unburned. The rest of her remains had been completely cremated. What makes the case odd was the environment of her surroundings. In order for a body to be cremated, the body must burn at 300 degrees Fahrenheit for three to four hours. Yet somehow, the surrounding area of her chair and the rest of her apartment were relatively unaffected. The walls had no burn marks and showed no signs of scorching or burned paint. Light switches were melted, but outlets were still completely functional. Candlesticks had melted, but their wicks stood upright. And a stack of newspapers close to the chair was undamaged. Mary's neighbours were also unaware of the fire. The FBI eventually declared that Mary had been incinerated by the wick effect when the clothing of the victim soaks up melted human fat and acts like the wick of a candle. As she was a known user of sleeping pills, 
They had this homicide, but she had fallen unconscious while smoking and set fire to her nightclothes. However, there is still some speculation that she died of a spontaneous human combustion. Due to the horrific state of the body, authorities believe that the woman was murdered. With no sign of struggle at the time, authorities believe that the unidentified victim would have known her murderer. The only signs of evidence were the size 10 footprints that indicated a heavy person running away. Provincetown Police Chief Jimmy Meads said that the killer likely drove the victim to the dune in a four-wheel drive sand vehicle to sunbathe. Despite using bloodhounds and missing persons bulletins scouring the registers of local lodgings and looking into anyone who had a permit to bring their vehicle onto the beach, police turned up with nothing. In 2019, Provincetown local Margie Childs reflected on the case. The fact that no one could identify the Lady of the Dunes in the tight-knit community was very strange. Almost 50 years later, the victim known as the Lady of the Dunes is still unidentified. in Polden, which is about two hours north of Phoenix. 
After that, the National UFO Reporting Centre began to receive a slew of calls south of Holden, suggesting that the lights were moving in a southern eastern direction. There were more than 700 alleged witnesses who saw the lights, including pilots, police officers and military officials who lit up the National UFO Reporting Centre's switchboard, demanding explanations. Some described the lights as orbs, others said triangles. However, a large number of witnesses described the lights as part of a singular massive craft that made no noise. Around 10pm, a second set of as many as nine lights appeared in the sky. A later printed technician named Dana Valentine claimed to have witnessed the craft from his yard in Phoenix. We could see the outline of the mass behind the lights, but you couldn't actually see the mass, he reported. It was more like a grey disorientation of the night sky wavy. I don't know exactly what it was, but I know it's not a technology the public have heard before. Air traffic controllers could not see the lights on the radar, despite seeing them in the sky with their very own eyes. Frances Barwood, the 1997 Phoenix City Councilwoman, who launched an investigation into the event, said that, one of, that over 700 witnesses she's interviewed, the government never interviewed even one. To this day, the unexplained Phoenix lights remain a mystery. Nine-year-old Walter Collins donned a lumber jacket, brown coroids trousers, black oxfords and a grey cap and set off to see a movie in the Mont Washington neighbourhood of Los Angeles. Walter never returned home. His mother, Christine Collins, a telephone operator, reported her son missing five days later on March 15th. At the time, the area was still recovering from the kidnapping and gruesome murder of a 12-year-old girl, Marilyn Parker. That had only happened three months earlier. Tips of apparent Walter sightings came as far away as San Francisco and even Oakland, California. In one bizarre tip, someone reported seeing Walter at a gas station in Greendale with his body wrapped in newspaper and only his head visible. Police searched for months without any success. In Illinois, in August 1928, state police picked up a runaway boy who matched Walter's description. The boy told authorities he was Walter Collins and gave a hazy description about his abduction. He spoke to Christine over the phone and she paid $70 to have her son transported back to Los Angeles. The boy lived with Christine for three weeks and she realised that this boy wasn't her son. Christine found that the boy who was living with her was an inch shorter than Walter and she used dental records to show that this was a different kid. Christine told the police, yes he looks like Walter and some ways acts like my son but still I'm not certain about it. You see, Walter was quiet and well behaved. He always called me mother. This child calls me ma. 
and at times he is hard to handle. I certainly hope that he is my soul, but somehow I just can't bring myself to believe it. Pressured by the public, the police insisted that the child was indeed Walter. They conducted a series of tests to prove it. They had the child find his way back home from memory and brought in Walter's pet dog, who allegedly recognised the boy as its owner. Nevertheless, Christine wasn't convinced. LAPD Captain JJ Jones associated the grieving mother, saying, What are you trying to do? Make fools out of all of us? Or are you trying to shrink your duties as a mother and have the state provide for your son? You are the most cruel-hearted woman I've ever known. You are a fool. On September 8, 1928, the police had Christine committed to a psychiatric ward at the Los Angeles County General Hospital. While Christine was in hospital, JJ spoke again to the boy that they had picked up in Illinois. During that conversation, the boy made it known that he was indeed not Walter Collins, but instead Arthur Hutchins. After his mother had died, the boy ran away from his father and stepmother. He was hitchhiking around the US and when inside a cafe, he was told that he resembled a missing boy from Los Angeles. When he was picked up, juvenile authorities were sceptical about his story, but the police were so desperate to close the Collins case that they insisted on its accuracy. As for why Arthur lied, he said that he wanted to go to Hollywood to meet a cowboy actor named Tom Mix. Christine was released from the psych ward on September 13, 1928 and sued the LAPD. JJ Jones was suspended from duty. Collins won her lawsuit against Jones and was awarded $10,800, which she never paid. She spent the rest of her life continuing to search for her missing son. This mystery inspired the movie The Changeling, which starred Angelina Jolie. turned home at around 2am. His wife, Ruth, reported that he had a plastic handcuff around one ankle and handcuffs around his hands. He pointed to his throat, indicating that he couldn't speak, so his wife handed him a pen and paper and he wrote that there was a hallucinogenic drug in his throat that could destroy his nervous system. Ruth wanted to contact the police, but Charles told them not to and said it would put their family in danger. As Ruth nerfed him back to health, he disclosed that he had been working as a secret agent for the past two to three years for the US Treasury Department. He then claimed his abductors took his Treasury ID and provided no more details. Two months after his initial disappearance, he was reported to be missing again. After nine days, Ruth received a phone call from an unidentified woman that said, Chuck is alright, and then hung up. Two days after the strange phone call on June 18th, 
His body was discovered lying 40 miles west of Tuscan, near his car. Charles had been shot in the back of the head by his own gun. He was found wearing a bulletproof vest, a belt buckle that had a hidden knife and a holster. A pair of sunglasses were found at the scene that didn't belong to him. Investigators searched his car and found several weapons and a cache of ammunition. The car had also been altered so that it could be unlocked from the fender. On the rear seat of the car, Morgan's tooth was discovered wrapped up in a white handkerchief. Bizarrely, there was also a $2 bill with several Spanish surnames and a map of the border area pinned to Morgan's underwear. The map led to Lovell's Junction and the facility, the area between Tuscan and Mexico. These towns had a reputation for smuggling at the time. Above the surnames and an arrow was drawn to the bill's serial number pointing to the numbers 1 and 8. Some of the other writings on the bill had alleged Masonic references and Charles also had a piece of paper with directions in his handwriting that led to the site where he was found. Medical examiners claim that Charles Morgan was only dead for 12 hours when he was found. Strange that there were no fingerprints found on the scene, not even on the gun. On Morgan's hand, they found gunpowder and residue. For the reason, the Sheriff's Department labelled the death a suicide that seemed to be the end of the Charles C. Morgan case. Ruth Morgan rejected this theory and holds the belief that he was murdered. I don't know if this will ever be solved, she said. I'd like to know why. I don't think we'll ever find out who killed him. Despite the passage of time and the 160 million spent scouring thousands of square miles of ocean, the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370 and the fate of the, the 239 people aboard remains a mystery.
episode. How are we liking them? Any that we're starting to recognise? Don't forget, if you do have any ghost stories or experiences or even movie reviews that you're wanting me to do, you can send them in to me at darkandspooky13 at gmail.com. If you're not already doing so, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram under the same name, which is dark underscore and underscore spooky 666. Please also don't forget to leave me a review and rating on whatever platform you do listen to your podcasts on. It will really help me and the podcast out. And if you do follow me on Facebook, if you can please leave me a, a star rating and a review over there. It will really help me out with the Facebook algorithm as well. Don't forget the book club tw is coming in 2024. So if that is something of interest, you can message me. And basically just to cover that again, um, we meet up, up to three times a week um, online uh, where we all read the same book, but we all participate and then obviously discuss uh, from there. It's £6.66 a month. Uh, the first two months the books are already chosen just to get us in a rhythm and then after that we will all choose as well so if that is something that you think you'll enjoy don't forget to he hesitate to contact me either but all that's left to say is stay spooky and i'll see you on the next one mm -hmm.